How can you not be romantic about baseball? Bringing a high drive to left. This baby's way back. It is out of here. I don't believe what I just saw. Coswell slashes one foul. Oh, that hit a bird, and it bounces back into fair territory. Oh, I got to I got to check the rule book on this one, folks. I'm too drunk taste this chicken. Our ass is in the jackpot now. You're listening to Booze and Baseball. There's 50 feet of crap. And then there's us. A baseball first podcast. Sort of. Featuring Derek Johnson. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. And Dusty Baker. I heard that. Dynamite drop-in money. That broadcast school has really paid off. So sit back and enjoy the talk around the diamonds with a cold one in hand. Today's secret ingredient is... I love scotch. I love scotch. Scotch has got scotch. Here it goes down. Down into my belly. Listening to Booze and Baseball with Derek Johnson. I'm Dusty Baker. Pull up a seat and join us at our bar. Let's talk some ball. And uh, Derek, of course, the trade deadline has come and gone. And uh, we're going to be talking all about the trade deadline. Specifically, we will be breaking down the winners and the losers. We'll also talk about individual players and their destinations from a fantasy standpoint. Are they top shelf, middle shelf, bottom shelf, or do they just get dumped out? And then we're going to meet Shohei at the bar because. I think Shoei has quite a bit to talk about, and our last call is pretty impactful uh, regarding, obviously, Derek and my own career. We'll talk more about Kevin Brown at the end of this show. But before we do, Derek, let's do our cheers here and uh, also our drinks. What are you drinking? Yeah, so I am uh, actually going out to California this weekend. So in honor of that, I am drinking a California Gimlet. It is a, uh, I don't know, it's a a kind of a cocktail. So I've got my uh, shaker here with the ice in it. And then what we're going to do, we need three quarter ounces of uh, lime juice here. So I'm going to dump that into my shot glass here, pour it into the shaker. Um, Then we got two ounces of gin. Now, all I have on me at this time is some uh, lavender gin from Hendrix. So I don't know how this is going to mess with the flavor overly much. Uh, I don't know. It might make it better. It might make it worse. We're going to find out when we try it. Are you a lavender gin guy? You a lavender gin actually, guy? Uh, just in general, I actually like this lavender gin. I think it's one of my favorites among the Hendrix, but I don't know how it's going to go in terms of the gimlet. So we got the yeah. two ounces of the gin. We got the three quarter ounces of the lime juice. And then uh, we got an ounce. Oops, hitting my microphone here. Sorry, probably making lots of noise. Uh, we have an ounce of uh, simple syrup, which is a lot of simple syrup, but that's going to add kind of the sweetness to it. So we put it in on ice. We've got our... Uh, Cocktail shaker. Give it a good shake. Oh, there it is. That's clean. Derek's doing this uh, in a new background in his uh, new podcast facility in his household. So naturally, uh, you got to start it out with a good drink, too. That's right. Okay, so we got it all shaken up. It's now nice and cold. We get the top on this. And yeah, pour. Get that thing strained out into there. Ooh, that's pretty. And boom, we have our California Gimlet. All right, rate it. Delicious. Good? Absolutely delicious. What? It, you so know, the lavender I actually works. like the lavender. Okay. Yeah, it's, okay. it's good in there. It gives it a little extra taste, but you get a lot of the lime. 
Um, it's almost like the equivalent. If you like margaritas, you get a little bit of that. It's just with a, a slightly different aftertaste with the gin as opposed to tequila. Uh, you get a little bit of the sweetness there with the simple syrup. So highly recommend. It's an easy. I mean, that's three things. That's all you put into it. And uh, yeah, really good. Mine is two. Uh, I, I kept it very simple. Somebody was telling me, I, so I'm a big fan. I got to start this by saying I'm a huge fan of like sour candy or sour anything really. Um, so naturally I was like a diehard fan of Warheads growing up. Well, somebody was telling me that there was a Warhead soda and I didn't know that was a thing. I got it right here. It's a Warheads sour blue raspberry soda. And they told me that it mixes really well with Bacardi. And I was like, I, I don't know if that's true. So I, this is, I've never tried this. I, this is a totally random, like two recipes and that's it. It's, it's Bacardi and it's this blue soda so we're gonna give it a shot i've got three shots of bacardi in here and then i'm filling the rest of this with just the blue raspberry and i took a little tiny sip prior to the show of the soda itself but i didn't want to give myself the actual full full taste until i had it mixed if you will so um we uh we're gonna give it a shot right here and see just how good this is or if it's not so okay surprisingly surprisingly that's not bad it's it it overpowers it's not that sour it's really not that sour but it completely overpowers the bacardi like i can't even tell there's three shots of bacardi in this kentucky derby glass i didn't even use a full can so there's a ton of sugar in this thing but um it it, it tastes delicious i'm not gonna lie i might have to might have to get more of that um Anyways, that is an A+. Plus. I did not expect to like that as much as I did. Okay, uh, so Derek, we're going to do our cheers, and we're recording this on August the 9th. Cheers to Michael Lorenzen, because what a performance he had against uh, the Washington Nationals on the day of recording. At the time of recording, we're about maybe 25 minutes after he threw a no-hitter. And uh, what a start that is to his time in Philadelphia, his first start in Philadelphia. Um, man, what an acquisition. Yeah, uh, that's exactly what you're going for at the trade deadline, you know, trying to make those last second pushes. And um, Michael Lorenzen was an all-star. Like, yeah, part of that was because the Tigers don't have a, a ton of other great candidates there. But, I mean, he was having a great season. So uh, didn't necessarily expect this, especially in his first start with the Phillies. But he's been really good all year long. Nine innings, obviously, five strikeouts, and uh, man, what a performance for him. That was very cool to watch. Uh, huge ad there for Philadelphia and, and late as well. Um, probably one that kind of went under the radar, but we're, of course, going to attack some that weren't quite as under the radar as this one. Before we do, though, we're going to do our chug and look back at its stat. So on this day, August the 9th, we're going to go 10 years ago, Derek. You know, this is just a reminder that action still happens in transactions as far as guys getting called up, guys being sent down, guys getting DFA'd. Uh, and uh, this kind of gives you the highs and the lows of baseball of what happened 10 years ago. We're going to start with the lows. The Philadelphia Phillies, they DFA'd Delman Young for assignment. If you remember, Delman Young at, at one point was a top prospect in all of baseball. There was a lot of potential with him. Uh, a lot of people believing that he was going to be like the next honestly, he was going to be the second coming of like Babe Ruth at one point. Somebody really believed that he was going to hit like 60 home runs in a season. I remember reading in Sports Illustrated that he was going to be special. And of course, 10 years ago, he was DFA'd. On the exact same day, 
Guess who was signed? How about Red Sox signed Rafael Devers to a minor league contract? The Indians, they called up Carlos Carrasco. The White Sox called up Avisel Garcia. And the Minnesota Twins called up Liam Hendricks. Now, I honestly, I got to be completely honest here, Derek. I did not realize Hendricks had pitched for the Twins. Like, that just uh, totally escaped me. Um, but that is, those are four pretty significant names that were called up. And, and that goes to show that every year you're going to have some major names called up around this time. Yeah, of course. Um, whether it's, you know, players, I, I do think you, you'll see less of it now than you did then because some of the prospects, you know, nowadays there is extra incentive to not manipulate the service time early on in the season. And we see more prospects come up throughout the season than maybe we did a decade ago. So I think that'll get tightened a little bit, but you know, I even go back to like the giants getting like a waiver claim basically on, I know there's no more waiver trades, but like Cody Ross, like it's even those small additions whether it's, you know, via trade that we don't think about, go back to Michael Lorenzen, you know, that wasn't one of the five or 10 most talked about trades, or, you know, even some of the uh, roster pickups, a player gets DFA'd, um, like what happens if Ramon Laureano, like just goes off for the Guardians or something like that, to even just the call-ups of a guy who's hot in the minor leagues and finally things are working together for him. Like as much as the big trades win the day, those things can win you, you know, postseason series, those things can get you into the playoffs as much as anything that you do at the deadline. Yeah, and the biggest thing is a lot of these moves under the radar at the time. So, you know, there's going to be moves that are made now that people are just going to kind of let slip past them. And then, you know, 10 years down the road, are we going to look at uh, the transactions that happen today or tomorrow and and be like, oh, wow, like that happened right under our nose and we had no idea, right? I, I think the thing that drives me crazy in fantasy baseball is knowing that I'm scrolling through a list of like 500 players and, you know, in five years from now, that same person scrolling is going to be like, dude, Dusty, how did you not see this coming? That this player was going to come out of nowhere and blow up, right? Like it just drives me ballistic knowing there's somebody currently in free agency in our fantasy league that is probably a top 20 player, like in two years from now. And it drives me crazy because I want to be the one that has them, you know? So uh, and it, the same thing happens at the MLB level, obviously of uh, these signings and, and players that come out of nowhere that all of a sudden you're like, Oh, wow, they were impactful. And that just happened right underneath. We didn't even notice. Um, so with that in mind, things we did notice at the trade deadline, there were some pretty significant moves made, maybe not as many, Derek, as we expected. No, it, it definitely felt like a bit of a snoozer. I I will say some of the trades that we had leaning up to the trade deadline um, were probably more of the, I don't know, big show in all this. So if, if all the trades that we had the day before, two days before, a week before the trade deadline, you know, even a month before with like the Chapman trade to Texas, if all of those would have actually happened on deadline day, I think it would have felt a little bit better. But even then, man, like it felt like there were a lot of big names that were at least floated out there that did not end up getting traded. And I think part of it was just the decision of, you know, a couple teams that were maybe middling, uh, ending up deciding to be buyers, you know, rather than sellers. You go back to the Angels, obviously that would have changed things tremendously. But honestly, one of, one of the biggest ones that, and this wasn't necessarily um, dumbfounded, they played really well since then and, and were, you know, on just this incredible streak leading up to the deadline, which is why the Cubs, like the Chicago Cubs had Marcus Stroman, they had Cody Bellinger, they had possibly some relievers that would have made a lot of sense for people to acquire in the trade right. market. But because they just went on this hot streak, that eliminated a bunch of players. Obviously, the Angels, Shohei Otani was, was kind of the big fish, and maybe they would have had other players that they would have ended up de dealing to. Like, pretty much a lot of the middle class of the MLB 
got extended out. And unfortunately, like, it's not just that the Royals and the A's and some of those teams that are really bad, like, it's not just that they're bad and they don't really have rentals. Like, those teams either have young players who they're not going to trade, like the Royals aren't going to trade, you know, Bobby Witt Jr. They're going to give more time to guys like MJ Melendez. Those teams are so bad with some of the veteran players and the rentals that, like, there just wasn't as many players. And then you add to it that even the teams who could have sold, like Dylan Cease or something like that, they just didn't. So, yeah, it was kind of a snoozer of a deadline. That was the the big one for me was the White Sox, the way that their deadline was handled. Um, they actually did fairly well, but, um, you know, Derek and I are winners and losers. They do, they do not consist of the White Sox on either end there, um, simply because they kind of were in the middle ground, I would say, where they acquired a couple really solid prospects in, in trades that they made, uh, specifically with guys like Lucas Giolito. But, you know, they probably would have actually come away a winner had they traded away Cease at the, the height of his value, right? And they didn't do that. Um, because they didn't believe they got the return that they needed. And I, I found it a little surprising because I feel like a team like the Orioles, the Dodgers, the Reds, they had the prospects, they had the pieces to go out there and get a Dylan Cease and pay up probably a little more than what maybe would be considered a fair deal. Like I, I, I feel like the White Sox needed an overpay. But yeah, I, I just, it, it didn't feel to me like, it was the greatest trade deadline of all time, especially after a year in which, you know, we saw, I mean, we saw Juan Soto get traded. So it's hard to top that. And maybe our expectations were just a little too high because of that. And, and the rumors with Otani, uh, but yeah, it, it definitely didn't quite live up to the hype that I think uh, maybe we had surrounding it. Cause a lot of people saying this could be the greatest trade deadline ever. It, it definitely wasn't, but um, we're going to talk about the guys that did get traded. First of all, though, uh, winners and losers. Derek, who is or who are your two winners from this trade deadline? Yeah, and by the way, I'm glad you brought up the Padres because that's another team that could have sold, but they ended up being, you know, kind of buyers instead. And um, I I have the Mets and the Astros here on winners. I think it became a bit of a, a, a seller's market. And it's kind of funny because these two made a big trade with each other. I have the Astros on here for short term because, you know, I I saw somebody put this out there that the Astros are kind of everything that you want your organization to be. They draft well, they sign international free agents. Well, they develop really well. They sign certain guys, but they don't, you know, necessarily sign everyone uh, back to the program. They do go out and make the occasional free agent pickup and they make trades when they're, when they're in it, they go for it. And that's kind of the the fun part of being a fan, right? Like you get that kind of energy around it. Um, So, yes, I probably thought they gave up a little too much for Justin Verlander. They probably should have just paid for him and signed him in the (laughs) offseason. But also, I I appreciate a team going for it. There is something fun in that in being a fan. Now, the Mets, I thought, were winners because, obviously, they would have preferred to be buyers. And, you know, but all things considered, what they had to deal with, they got really good hauls for a lot of what they gave up. You know, getting Luis Angel Acuna for uh, Max Scherzer, getting uh, Drew Gilbert, who I really like from, from Houston. Ryan Clifford is a big power hitter from Houston. Also, I I will say, I think, um, you know, some of those trades, the Scherzer one and the Vertlander one probably hurt the market for Dylan Cease, because if you're another team who had to trade for Dylan Cease and with Cease, you have a much younger pitcher who is under club control for another, you know, couple years or two and a half years. Um, you're probably looking at it and going, well, we have to top the offer at this point of what the Astros gave up for Justin Verlander by a pretty sizable margin. And, you know, both Clifford, like Clifford is, I don't know, maybe some people have him as a top 100 prospect. Um, When you look at Drew Gilbert, he certainly is. 
So that made it probably tough for some of those other trades. But yeah, I really like the Mets return in their hall. They strengthen their farm system for either future play or, you know, if they're back in it next year, Steve Cohen could spend a lot of money in, in the offseason. I know he said he might not do that with Scherzer, but uh, if they do go for it or, or they are better or they maybe have better luck or something, all of a sudden you've strengthened your farm system to maybe make more trades next year and to go for it next year. So I, I really liked what the Mets did. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I think that, you know, the Mets are going to be looked at this year as a complete failure, but um, what a way for them to at least kind of give them something to build on. Um, I completely agree. Like at a, in a year where it seemed like everything went wrong, being able to retain Acuna in that deal was pretty impressive. And, um, you know, you kind of mentioned it, like it's a little surprising the Astros paid that, that kind of price for Verlander when they could have literally signed him. But you know, it, it is what it is. They they still retain him. They still have uh, now a winning piece that can help them go back to back. So huge wins for both of those teams. I agree with both of those. Uh, for me, my winners are the Texas Rangers, and you mentioned them already, the Chicago Cubs. Uh, the Rangers really, probably in my eyes, are the biggest winners at this deadline. Um, they were able to address uh, kind of more of a deficiency in their bullpen as far as depth. Uh, they didn't really have a lot of it. They DFA Joe Barlow, who... Uh, at one point may have seemed to be a closer like he was last year. Um, they haven't really had any success with LeClerc back there. Will Smith is hard to rely on back there. Uh, so they bring in Araldis Chapman, who has just been absolutely lights out. Then they go out there and they get Max Scherzer. And yes, they did have to pony up uh, with the Luis Angel, uh, Luis Angel Acuna. But um, the fact that they are doing the same thing you kind of mentioned with the Astros of they're going for it. They're trying to win now. I respect that move. And then the last one, and maybe the most underrated move was acquiring Jordan Montgomery, um, really giving that rotation depth and the ability uh, in, in a time when they're going to need wins in the regular season, they have a guy that can go out there, eat innings, have success on the Hill, uh, go deep in games. Cause that's something he does really well. And um, I, I like that move. I, I thought that that was a, an underrated move for them, uh, taking him from St. Louis. So overall, I, I felt pretty good about what the Rangers did. I, I think that they made themselves a lot stronger. They definitely made themselves a team to be uh, forced to be reckoned with in the playoffs, quite frankly. Like they, they made themselves better in the regular season. They made themselves better for the postseason. And that's what you want from the deadline. The other team that I feel like is a winner uh, with the Cubs is because of the acquisition of Jamer Condelario. Uh, I think that he's very underrated. He was kind of that three hole, four hole hitter for the Washington nationals. He is reunited with the Cubs. And, you know, obviously we could sit here and talk about, Oh, that was a great trade because you know, we're a week after the deadline and uh, he's had some success with the Cubs. But even before then, I just simply thought that that was a good move on paper for them. If they were deciding to go for it, like they have, they needed another bat in the lineup. He provides some value both as far as ripping doubles because he ranks in the upper echelon in that category. Um, he's got some pop as well. And in Wrigley, it obviously translates well, and, and it's been successful for them. Um, so I, I'm happy with what the Cubs have done. Uh, that move in particular really stood out to me. And I like the fact that they didn't sell, man. I like the fact that the Cubs said, you know what? We believe in our team. We believe in what we've got here. And it's just a matter of we've got to we got to make a move or two in order to actually get ourselves in a position to where we feel comfortable making a run uh, late in the year. And so that's what they did. And, you know, now you're sitting here like, oh, it was the right decision because they believed in the unit that they had and they went out there and got the guy that they needed. Um, an interesting move, by the way, of DFAing 
uh, Trey Mancini, it allows them now to kind of go to some of their youth. And uh, it just seemed like Mancini wasn't working for them. That doesn't have anything to do with the deadline, but it's just interesting that they didn't maybe address that part. Um, but I think Candelario's addition was a big reason why that happened too. So uh, yeah, Candelario has been playing some first. So yeah. Yeah. It, and it made sense. It, it made sense overall that they had to make that move. So I, I like the Cubs and what, what they did to acquire that piece, because that's another underrated piece, kind of like Lorenzen. Uh, as for losers, who do you have? I go with the Giants and Mariners, which is funny because they actually linked up on a trade. I thought the Mariners could have done a little bit more, uh, whether it was selling guys like Teoscar Hernandez or being buyers or doing a little bit of both. I really like their starting pitcher depth. Obviously, Brian Wu is now on the IL with with what appears to be some minor injury. Uh, but I, I thought they had enough starting pitcher depth and not enough hitting that you know, there was actually floated out there a lot of stuff about like, could the Mariners and Reds link up on something that sends like Jonathan India because the Reds have so much infield depth to the Mariners and the Mariners flip back a pitcher to the Reds. I think that would have made a lot of sense for both teams. I didn't really feel like there was a direction for the Mariners. They gave up Paul Seawald, which maybe that's fine because Andres Munoz is really good, but I don't know. It felt like they were like soft sellers. If you were going to go that way again, like I said, you could have sold more people. Um, and I would have liked to see them strengthen their lineup because that hasn't been very good this year. Uh, the Giants didn't make any moves, which was astounding to me because literally like a week or two before the deadline, Farhan Zaidi, uh, the president for the team's baseball operations, said that we are going to be very aggressive. And they were not aggressive. All they got was A.J. Pollock and Mark Mathias. Pollock has gone like 07, 08 already, has made mess-ups in the field. He's now on the IL. Um, and you also get Mathias, who's, you know, he's, uh, that pretty good triple a numbers he just got called up he had a big hit against the angels the other day so we'll see where that one kind of goes but um I, I there was kind of this split divide among giants fans about some being like you know this is ridiculous why would you not go for it why would you not try to make a big addition there were another split because the giants do have a lot of young players who have been kind of on the precipice of coming up or have come up with luis matos marco luciano casey schmidt you go on and on and on down the line where they were like no let's see what the young kids can do and see what they want to play the problem was that by getting AJ Pollock, you prevented Helio Ramos from coming up, who actually is coming up today because of the injury, um, who's just smashing in AAA. You forced Marco Luciano to go back down to AAA. You forced Casey Schmidt to go back down, which I understand because he had like a 350 OPS over the last like month and a half. But that's kind of the point. This idea that you're trusting in all these young kids with a lot of them kind of struggling. I just didn't think it really anything made sense. And then again, if you go back to the comment and you say, we're going to be aggressive and you do literally the exact opposite, that is kind of a problem to me. So I thought they had a real opportunity with the Dodgers still being a really good team this year, but this isn't the same Dodgers from the last couple of years. This was your opportunity to maybe, you know, kind of strike yeah. and, and make a big move yeah. and try to go for the division. And they just kind of sat and, and didn't do anything. You know, this show is called booze and baseball. And Derek's been drinking a lot since that segment came up. Um, <laughs> I am sorry that you have to deal with Farhan. This is a, uh, a constant theme for us of having to talk about Farhan's problems of not doing anything, which is what he did in LA. And he's taken it to San Francisco. I am not surprised that he did nothing. Um, what I am surprised by my losers, they are the Reds and the Angels. The Angels, let's start with them first. Somehow they believe after having no consistency in the regular season as far as winning uh, or stringing hits together or having consistent offense or good pitching. They didn't have any of that, right? Like they have an injured Mike Trout, who's still not back, by the way. 
And somehow, at the last second, they decide, yeah, this is the year we're going to try and win with Shohei Otani right before he's about to leave. We're going to try and entice him as if the previous, you know, five years haven't, you know, totally gone to his head that this team sucks and this organization is terrible. You know, let's entice him this year. So they bring in Lucas Giolito, who is going through a divorce, mental issue. Like, like that's, I don't know how you pitch through that, to be honest with you. That, that's brutal. Um, they go out and get CJ Crone and Randall Gritchick, who are hitting in Coors Field. Expect those numbers to drop immediately. Now, Gritchick hasn't been too bad since he came over, but the numbers have already dropped off a little bit. CJ Crone has not looked good. Um, I don't know what they're doing. I, I, I just, I, I don't understand. Can you imagine, Derek, the hall that they could have had for Shohei Otani? Like, that hall would have been insane. And the Angels fan base, I don't know what exactly they want in this scenario. It's tough because you don't want to see your best player go, but your team, you could do a dramatic turnaround in a year based off the players you could get for Otani, knowing also that he's going somewhere else at the end of the year. Now, all of a sudden, this team's sitting here with what seems like a really uphill battle, and they're going to probably lose Otani. It's going to take years for them to try and rebuild in a system where they don't have a farm system that develops. And it's just a mess. It, it's a mess. The Angels are the biggest losers in all baseball. I'm sorry. Like they are in completely incompetent in every way, shape, or form. And not to mention that not only are the Rangers and the Astros ahead of them, but now they have the Mariners to deal with too in their own division. It's just, it's, it's ass nine. I, the Angels drive me ballistic. Um, I'm glad I'm not an Angels fan because I feel so bad for anybody that is. Uh, as for the Reds, and especially living in this part of the country now, I really thought that they would go out and make a move. I really thought that they had the pieces to go out, uh, spend an Edwin Arroyo to go out and get a Dylan Cease. Like Edwin Arroyo, Connor Phillips, and Michael Ciani could have reeled in Dylan Cease. I really believe that. And if, if it's not that, it's not going to be much more. Um, they didn't do that. They didn't take advantage of the fact that they have tons of infield pieces, as you mentioned. Um, instead, they go out and they get one arm. They get one bullpen arm in Sam Mole from the Oakland A's, trading Joe Boyle. That is the one move they made. And I even said the moment that this deadline happened, like if they don't address the rotation, which is their weakness, it's going to bite them immediately. And it has. And honestly, like they fully deserve this because they said they were going to be buyers. I know their window isn't necessarily right now, but when your fan base is invested, when you've waited this long, when you have a team with the kind of energy the Reds have, go and try and do something. Try and make a move. Like, if you go for Dylan Cease, you get a controllable starter. But they didn't do that. And Reds are huge losers, in my opinion, for that. Now, does this affect them like it does the Angels? No, because at least the Reds can hold their prospects for next year. But... They missed their window this year They, as far as the opportunity because I think they're going to get bumped out of the playoffs now. Yeah, I think I, I understand the Reds one from the standpoint of, yes, yeah, and Pat and um, I guess letting um, your young guys develop. But still, to your point with Cease, you're getting two and a half years of control with Dylan Cease. So like the timeline would have actually matched up with these other young players. Yep. I, I can actually get on board with the Angels thing, man. I just like, if you lose Shohei Otani at the end of this offseason, which seems extremely likely at this point, 
it doesn't really matter to me, like whether they have, I don't know, some of these prospects, because what's going to happen is some of them are going to come up and the timeline is just, it's not going to work out that um, those guys who are going to get ready to come up are, they're probably still just going to be bad. I would rather just take the risk because the avenue for the Angels competing for a World Series to me within the next three years would have a better chance if Shohei or Tani were on the team than it would with prospects. And the only way to possibly keep him on the team was to keep him at the deadline and add around him. I think they've just had, it's the most angels thing ever that they bought and they've gotten worse that they now (laughs) have like a losing streak. They've somehow gotten worse, even adding these players. I do agree from the standpoint of like, they probably gave up too much for Lucas Giolito, number one and number two prospect. Um, You know, you, you probably, I don't know, maybe you went out and got some of the wrong guys possibly, but like, at the end of the day, man, I, I I don't blame them because I don't know, man. This is a once in a generation player. Like like it, it'd be another thing if he was really good, if he was like the tenth best player in the MLB. But like he is literally the the craziest unicorn we've ever seen. So you do everything in your power to make sure that guy is a part of the team. And it was a huge risk and reward. And it looks like they're going to end up on the risk side of it because, like I said, they they've gotten worse somehow. But um, I don't know. I, I get it at least a little bit. And honestly, regardless if they have, uh, you know, the five prospects that would have gotten Otani for the next couple of years versus not having Otani at all, I don't think they'd be very good next year in the next three or four years anyway. I'd be curious to see what the returns of the asking price was like. If you're telling me that like a Heston Kerstead was possibly on the move and, and some of the guys from like the Orioles specifically, I, I look at that farm system and I think that the Angels, you know, or any team in general can turn it around based off some of the pieces they have in their farm because that team's really good. But if they weren't being offered those names, then that's the only reason why I can rationalize with it. But that at this point, that is a move point because there's there's no turning back now. Uh, quickly, we go to our top shelf, middle shelf, bottom shelf dump. Uh, we're going to quickly analyze each of these fantasy baseball players uh, now that they've changed teams. And we're going to talk about where their value was and where it is now. Starting with Max Scherzer, Derek, where was he? Was he top shelf, middle shelf, bottom shelf dump? And where is he now after this trade? I'm having a hard time between top shelf and middle shelf. He's going to get a ton of wins with the Rangers. They put up a ton of runs. That ballpark is not great at suppressing home runs, but it's great at suppressing everything else. The problem is Max Scherzer has the highest home run rate of his career. It's at like 1.8. The next highest, I think, is like 1.3. So if it is a, a ballpark that does well at suppressing other things, but not home runs... Kind of a problem. It was he was kind of middle shelf in New York. He's borderline top shelf, but I think he still stays at middle shelf based off production. He is going to get more wins. That's really the only change for me. Uh, and to your point, I just I don't see a dramatic difference. I think the wins is the only fantasy category you're really going to gain from at this point in time because the division is really difficult too. Uh, Justin Verlander. Uh, again, this is kind of between top shelf, middle shelf. Like it's clear Verlander is not the same guy, but he's still going to produce. Um, if you're in a league where, you know, K's really matter, K per nine, that hasn't been as high for Verlander this year. So maybe closer to middle, middle shelf if you're in a league where it's standard five by five. And so, um, you know, the ERA is going to have a bigger, you know, load on things at that point in time and, and wins and stuff than it is top shelf for me. Uh, this is good comfortability. He's going to get wins. He's going to get run support. He knows how to pitch there. So a uh, good pitcher, but. I don't know if I'd have him like in the top five to 10 starting pitchers the rest of the season. I don't know. Maybe he'd be close. He he was kind of middle shelf for me before. I actually have him at top shelf now. And it goes back to your point of comfortability. 
He knows how to pitch there. This is a team that he's had significant success with. And quite frankly, he was a top 10 pitcher a year ago with this team. So he goes back there. It's going to reignite something. He's going to be dominant down the stretch as long as he can stay healthy. Uh, this team's going to give him wins. He's got rapport with their catchers. He's he's just, this, this is a better fit for him overall. Um, New York is a complete disaster. And, and unlike Scherzer, where he kind of was already starting to drop off, Verlander wasn't really until he went over to New York. You're going to see a turnaround real quick. I, I think this is actually a promotion for him to top shelf uh, at the, the this point in the trade. Uh, Aaron Savali. Man, I, I don't know. I, I This is the most complicated trade for me, just in general. With we'll, we'll get to you know the other side of this. But the Rays gave up so much in terms of prospect value. And with how smart of an organization they are, it's hard not to be like, okay, they clearly know something. Like, obviously, Aaron Savali's coming in. Like, Aaron Savali's had a great year by ERA, but some of the underlying metrics, the strikeouts aren't there. The the strand rate is super high. It's like, well, was this going to continue? He's a good pitcher, but is he going to be more of like a mid-threes ERA guy, or is he going to continue to be like a mid-twos, low-twos type of ERA guy? Maybe the Rays have seen what he's done so far, and they're like, hey, we think we can make him even better. We think we can mess with this pitch mix so that he does this or that good, and we can we can mess with it. So I guess I'm going to put him on the middle shelf because I just trust the Rays overall. Um, but also there is a part of me that wants to put him on bottom shelf because I do think, I don't know, some of the stats say that there should be some reversion to the mean, even though you know some of that reversion would still be being a good pitcher. I just I guess I'll just trust the Rays. Even though their division is way harder to face, I actually go from bottom shelf to middle shelf with him. And um, it is because of that reasoning. You know, Zach Eflin is the perfect example. The Rays have this really good way of them of, of scouting out these kind of middle of the road pitchers that have low ERAs. And they seem to improve their caper nine with those squads, too. I don't expect necessarily Savali to do that, but uh, the ERA has been pretty impressive. And from a fantasy standpoint, I started kind of jumping on board. I actually own a share of him. And um, I think now that he's traded to Tampa and for the prices you mentioned, they clearly saw something beyond just the fact that this guy can keep the ball in the ballpark and keep uh, the scoreboard low. Like they, they saw some, some, something else, right? Something they saw in Eflin and just trusting them as long as he doesn't get injured, because that's the problem with the Rays now is their rotation. Everybody seems to get hurt. Um, if they can keep him healthy, I think that this is a guy that's going to get wins now, and he wasn't getting that before. Um, they're going to monitor his arm maybe a little bit better than Cleveland because they have some depth at least there, even with the injuries. I don't know. I think it's middle shelf at this point. I, I don't. I don't see it much more than that. But middle shelf for me, uh, I think he gets the promotion from bottom shelf. Uh, Lucas Giolito. This is kind of the same area for me with Savali. I expect Savali to have a better ERA than Giolito. Giolito gets more strikeouts. Uh, some of the under. Line numbers do not look great on Giolito. Some of his stuff numbers have severely dropped from past years to this year. Some of his FIP and stuff doesn't look great. It's clear the Angels are just losing all these games, so it's not going to help him in terms of wins and losses. But maybe there's something there about the comfortability. You mentioned the divorce. He gets to go back home to Southern California. Maybe that helps him ease through it and get through some of this stuff. I also remember a, a stat like a year or two ago that he was horrible at early uh, starts to the season but and that he sleeps in super late in the day. Well, in, in the West Coast, he's going to be playing a lot of later games. So I, I think I'm going to leave this one middle shelf, even though this is not a guy that I'm very interested in, not a guy that I'm really buying. I can see some of the appeal of what he does. He's just one of those guys, too, that I think in general knows how to pitch, and that's going to help him perform a little bit better than maybe his expected stats are going to be. But he's still not someone that I like. I He'd be far away from like if he's your number one or number two in fantasy. I don't think that's a good thing.
No, it's not. I, I, you know, he was borderline bottom shell for me. Um, I think that the move to Anaheim, like you said, that that helps him from the mental side of things. I don't know from the physical actual output uh, side of things that it's going to improve much more. In fact, he goes to a way harder division and he is going through a tough time right now. I think in this one year, and, and this is what's going to happen. I mean, he's going to be a free agent at the end of the year. As far as just for the next couple months, he goes to bottom shelf for me. I think that if he signs in Anaheim and he gets an off season there and then he goes back, then that changes for me. But as far as the short-term value, I, it, it kind of drops the bottom shelf for me because I don't like the matchups against Houston. I don't like the matchups against the Rangers. Like, I don't want that. You know, I don't want that late in the season, especially when the playoffs are coming up. So I, it kind of goes to the bottom shelf for me, to be honest. And and I think a lot of that is the human element, to be completely honest with that. Our last pitcher we're going to talk about here is Paul Seawalt. You kind of talked about it earlier. Where, where does he belong in this? Well, I, the Diamondbacks, the problem was they didn't just need one reliever. They needed probably like two, three, or four. Like they really needed to overhaul that bullpen. So I don't know how much, you know, it's almost like putting a Band-Aid on, uh, you know, some giant, like your arm got cut off and you just put a Band-Aid on it. Like I don't know how much it's going to fix. Um, but they're still a good team. They're going to provide him save opportunities. Um, that's one of the parks that, you know, was a really big hitter park like 10 years ago, and then they added the humidor and it became a pitcher park since then. So um, I, I don't know. I guess this is like, I don't, I don't think he's any better than he was in a situation in Seattle, but I don't think it's like markedly worse though, either. So he, he's always been like a good reliever, but he's not one of the like five best. So I guess, what does that make him like no shelf? Yeah, that's where I have him. I mean, the situation, honestly, it's like the diamondbacks are the replica of the, the Mariners in the national league. Like they're kind of the same, same types of teams where they win by two runs every now and then they blow a save every, every once in a while, but they're always, they're decent. They're not great. They'll be in the playoff hunt, but they're not great, you know? And it's, it's not much of a change. It's kind of bizarre actually that that trade happened in the first place. The Mariners did this again with uh, Kendall Graveman prior when they traded him to a division rival. That was probably a worse scenario. Um, yeah, this, this doesn't hurt his value. I don't think it helps it either. I think it just, kind of sits there if you're an owner of uh you know andres munoz though you're pretty thrilled i think by that trade uh because the value of munoz definitely went up uh the moment that that trade happened um we got one mlb hitter we're going to talk about and then the two prospects uh to close this thing out um josh bell what the heck happens with his value i mean on one hand you don't have to worry about as much about guys creeping up on playing time you know sharing time at all with Josh Naylor, does Kyle Manzardo come up? Uh, so that's good. But also Miami is not a good hitters park. And we've seen like weird years from Josh Bell where like he'll have one year where he hits for a lot of power and then he'll have another year where he it's like no power and average. Maybe that's the type of guy that he becomes. That's kind of what I'm expecting. So it's like if your fantasy team needs average, I'd be all about this for Josh Bell. You know, if you just want like hits and daily production from that way, sure. Uh, but if you're looking for power, this is not the place to go. Yeah, you know, I, I totally agree. If you need pop, go the other way. If you just want average, I think his average will go up a little bit. This is more of a team that's built on the idea of stringing hits together. Uh, he'll probably fit into that mold. He, he was successful in the first half last year before getting traded to San Diego for that reason. But um, yeah, he's kind of a wild card for me. I think he's bottom shelf going to bottom shelf. I think he stays bottom shelf. He's ownable. It's just he doesn't really offer anything more than that. He's He's got a really really low 
ceiling. It's it's more of a middle floor, if you will, even. So that, that's bottom shelf for me. Okay, we have the two prospects. We'll talk about both of them here. That is Kyle Manzardo, who was traded uh, in exchange for Savali. So he's in Cleveland now. And Luis Angel Acuna is now in New York. Uh, so with Acuna, he's not like a huge power guy. He's not quite like his brother. He's got a little bit in there, but you know, not a ton. He's a big steals guy, though. Um, just in general, you know, it, it depends. If you're playing on more of a short-term league, I'm not expecting him to really be up this year. But next year, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all. And um, maybe that's something where, like, Starling Marte has had the green light a lot, and he's played a lot for them. Maybe he can be kind of a replacement in terms of, you know, just the speed and, and that type of guy. He's someone who's interesting, especially in a regular 5x5 five five league where, you know, steals at that point are one-fifth of the value uh, you are as a hitter. So uh, I like that. I think it's a, maybe an easier opportunity for him to get playing time as soon as next year because with the Rangers, you have a lot of really good hitters down the list, even young guys. Like, if you go to the outfield with Adelise Garcia, with Leotis Tavares, uh, Ezekiel Duran kind of being a – a uh, jack of all trades. They've still got Evan Carter waiting to come up, right? So I, I, I like that for him. With Kyle Manzardo, um, I, I don't know why the Rays did this. It scares me a little bit from the Rays' perspective because, again, it's like the Rays are so smart that they it scares something. you. Like, do they know something? Exactly. Do they know something about Kyle Manzardo that does not work? Then again, though, the Guardians are a really smart organization too, right? They, they've done a lot of really good things without paying for a lot of money. And when I look at Manzardo, you know, the numbers are still okay. They're like above average in AAA. It's the first time he's never hit like 300 or above at a level. There's some off the field stuff going on with, with his, you know, mom and stuff that he's having to deal with. Maybe that's kind of factoring into it. I'm going to buy into it. You look at some of the EVs, like the max EVs that he's putting up at the AAA level, the hard hit rates, the K rate and walk rates still being good enough there. Um, I'm buying into Kyle Manzardo for the long term, but it certainly does scare you because, again, the Rays tend to know what they're doing. I think both of these, uh, you, you could have kind of argued they were middle shelf prospects. I think both moves, to be honest, actually move them to top shelf. And here's the reason for Acuna. Uh, Acuna has an avenue, as you mentioned, right there at second base or the outfield uh, to get up to New York next year and work in a lineup where Lindor has speed, uh, kind of bouncing off Lindor back and forth and being protected by Pete Alonso. Like I, I think Acuna could be a two hole type hitter where he'll hit, you know, 15 home runs a season, but steal 45 bases for you, 50 bases. Uh, he hits for a high average. I mean, he's hitting 300 plus in, in the minors right now. So uh, I think that this speeds up his progress. I think that he doesn't now have somebody blocking him like he did in Texas, having Seager and Semyon and, you know, it, it was kind of a little more of a question mark there. And then Manzardo, nobody's blocking him, right? Like there, there's going to be the opportunity with Naylor uh, to either DH. Uh, they'll they'll figure it out with Naylor in the outfield if they have to. But um, I, I can see Manzardo getting a start at first base as early as opening day, possibly of next year, if that's really what they want to do. Knowing them, they'll they'll wait till May. But um, either way, Manzardo has just so much overall talent uh, that the only thing that scared me is the Rays are really a scary organization from a fantasy standpoint of having hitters. Curtis Mead is a great example. That kid is so special, but was blocked and is blocked right now. And Manzardo was going to be stuck in the same scenario, right? So now all of a sudden, you know, instead of having to, you know, battle junior Caminero and, and all these guys like Jonathan Aranda and the minors, he has this clean slate and he gets to go to a place where he basically has a direct path to starting first base. I love it. I think he's top shelf. Um, it's it's great for both prospects. Um, before we go to our close, Derek, you go to the bar, you see Shohei Otani. 
What do you say to him? I say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that no matter what you do, it just doesn't matter and your team can't win. And uh, please come to San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, I uh, probably show up to him. I'll buy him 17 drinks. He drinks none of them because he says he doesn't drink. Um, I say, oh, that's okay. Let me get you a water. We have the freshest water in Los Angeles. And I'm not talking about Anaheim. I'm talking about in Chavez Ravine. Please go to Chavez Ravine. I'm so sorry. Yeah, it, it's so sad what's happened with Shohei, man. And he deserves the best. He deserves to be on a winning team. Uh, somebody else that deserves the best, Eric. How about in our own industry, Kevin Brown, the announcer for the Baltimore Orioles. Um, he states a very normal line in a broadcast uh, talking about the Orioles, how they struggled against the Rays, and how they've gotten better over time. And he gets suspended for it. Um, just unbelievable. Yeah, really stupid. A lot of reasons. One, he's just reading off the graphic. Uh, but two, even then, like it's, the graphic wasn't anything wrong. Um, it's just stating a fact. What do you want him to do? Lie? No, we've beaten the Rays 200 straight times. Like, you know what I mean? It adds to the story of the game. That's your job as a broadcaster. He didn't say it in any malicious way. He didn't say we suck against the Rays, whatever. Like he just said, this is the fact. It adds to the story. Because if, if you're as a fan, you're like, hey, let's try to end this thing. Or like it adds to if we win, it's like, hey, we finally beat them they're really good. So it's not like they're down on their luck right now. So like, why even worry about this? What goes even further is, you know, there was some of the reporting from the athletic that like, if you wear team gear outside of the broadcast, you get like suspended. So one of the radio broadcasters got suspended because he was wearing Orioles gear outside of the stadium. It, it's just so incredibly stupid. John Miller, the uh, hall of fame broadcaster who, you know, did Sunday he's Night amazing. Baseball and now he's with the Giants. Yeah. He's a great broadcaster. He was with the Orioles and he got let go from the team for, you know, kind of similar stuff because they are just a defunct, stupid organization. And uh, I don't know. It makes me a little more mad that they're having a good season. It makes me mad too, man. I mean, the story we should be talking about is how good that team is. And um, the franchise decides let's, let's just poison what we've created at the moment and a bunch of good young kids. And they've got a good young broadcaster uh, calling this season. And, and let's just punish him for, literally talking like you said about facts and, and the other thing is this he gets punished we, we don't know what exactly happened with the other folks involved but uh, that graphic was made prior to the game so it's not like he did this on his own like this was scheduled this was supposed to happen it just it it, it blows my mind it makes me really disappointed and um you know as two younger broadcasters in this industry as well like it's a little discouraging you know like we, the fact that we could say something and um, get in trouble for saying facts. I mean, in, in this world where everybody talks about how there aren't facts out there and there's fact checks and and just a bunch of lies and, and fake news, somehow somebody telling the truth gets in trouble too, right? Like it just blows my freaking mind. Uh, with that being said, that will do it for our time here at the bar. We're going to go close our bar for the next two weeks, but we'll be back. Um, until then, though, we uh, we would love for you to reach out to us. So if you could, if you have any questions or if you have a topic that you would like us to discuss, you can email us. You can find us also on Twitter as well. Um, find these broadcasts on YouTube. That's a new thing that we are doing as well. Um, so you can find us at boozeandbaseball.gmail.com. Uh, find us on Twitter. And uh, we would love to take your questions for our next mailbag segment. Um, where we will be discussing anything that you have questions for. Derek, any last thoughts? Nope. Uh, let's have a good rest of August. We're almost in the postseason, crazy enough. Almost the postseason. We'll review our uh, 
preseason picks and uh, our stock numbers too coming up uh, on our next shows as well. But that will do it for us here on Booze and Baseball. And on behalf of Derek Johnson, I'm Dusty Baker. Thanks again for pulling up a bar stool and hanging with us. Let's grab a drink again in two weeks. Until then, though, we'll talk to you soon. Cheers. <laughs>